How beautiful. You know, we, we talk a lot about Jesus' kingdom mission to see his kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And sometimes that can be a really big concept to get our head around. But when we just pause and think about the moment of worship that we've just been in and together raising our voices in praise to God and joining the heavenly chorus that is being sung, not just around the world on a Sunday, but all of creation declaring the praises of God and we get to join in. And in moments like this, we are experiencing a moment, a heavenly moment, a moment where heaven invades this space, where heaven fills this space, where God's life is here. And we get to experience it in song like this. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. So thank you. Thank you guys for leading us so well. It's beautiful. Good on you. Off you go. Uh, <laughs> it's a good thing we don't worship bands and we don't worship songs and we don't worship instruments. We worship Jesus. Uh, these guys are just an extension of us as a community worshiping Jesus. And I'm grateful for everyone who brings their musical talent because I, for one, have not got any. As they say, I can't carry a tune in a bucket. Got a couple of giggles in it. Uh, very good. Well, we've spent a many number of weeks now in the book of Mark, um, and we have seen Jesus ministering um, in the early chapters in and around his hometown um, of Nazareth and Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, and then we um, look at Jesus kind of moves on from that area, and we see Jesus then on the road uh, ministering to the crowds. As he went, we've seen him um, healing people. We've seen him feeding thousands of people on a hillside with just a few fish and loaves. We've seen Jesus confronting um, the religious bigwigs, the establishment. We've seen him exposing the corruption of the powerful. Um, and we've seen him leaving a growing wake of grace and freedom behind him as he navigates his way towards Jerusalem. And today we find ourselves in the transitional moment between Jesus being on the road and Jesus arriving at Jerusalem. And in the Word today we see Jesus rounding the last corner of the highway on his road trip to Jerusalem and we see him entering what has been a destination that he has long known was going to be the place where he would be going the place not only knew he would end up, but the place, as one of the gospel writers says, that he resolutely set his face. Now, Jesus was drawn to Jerusalem with incredible passion and with intention. With passion not for its food or its coffee or its fine sights or tourist attractions, but with passion for what it would mean for him to give his life for all of humanity, passion to fulfill the promises of old, passion to reclaim the human heart from rebellion against God and to restore things with him, passion to um, usher in a new way of, of knowing God, to usher in a new way of God's people being a community together. He went to Jerusalem with a passion to reorder humanity's heart and align it to the kingdom of God. 
And as we open the word today, my hope is that we will see afresh the beauty of what kind of king we have in Jesus. Let's pray to that end, shall we? Father, we thank you for the timelessness of your word. Father, that um, spirit, son and father have all had a part in orchestrating, protecting, nurturing and moving your word forward that we could receive it today. And Father, we thank you for your providence and sovereignty in that. And we come with grateful hearts, Lord, that we have the word of life. And Father, we ask that as we turn to it, God, that your voice would be elevated um, and that mine would be diminished and that we would be left with a remnant of gold from you in Jesus' name. That the words that the Spirit would have us hold on to and remember and uh, go and take shape in our hearts as we go this week. Father, may those things stick in our minds and in our hearts. And Father, may we see you, King Jesus, in your word this morning, for your beauty and for your grace and the truth that we find in you. Amen. Well, I'm going to read. Uh, this is Mark chapter 11. Uh, that's big 11. And we're going to be starting at verse 1, the triumphal entry. And we're going to kick on. And it will be on the screen if you don't have your Bible. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives... Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied uh, in front of you, and immediately you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went and found a colt, tied at a door outside the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to him, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told him what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus, and they threw their cloaks on it. And Jesus sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields." And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And as he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple, and when he had looked around at everything, because it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany... Jesus was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And then they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold And those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through his temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? And the chief priests and the scribes heard it 
and they were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Now, it goes without saying that there is a lot going on in these 19 verses of Scripture. We see Jesus entering into Jerusalem, riding on the back of a baby donkey, while crowd throngs of people are worshipping him. He gives us um, another agricultural object lesson, or rather to the disciples that we get to look in on with the fig tree. And then he goes on to clear the decks of the temple, turning over the tables and upending the chairs and driving out all of the activity that was happening in there. It was almost like if you ever played Monopoly and you've got someone who hates losing in Monopoly and they get the board and they just upend the board and it goes everywhere. This was Jesus in this moment. And these are three distinct but very connected moments that Mark draws together here. In our Bible, they are listed with three separate headings, the triumphal entry, Jesus curses the fig tree, and Jesus cleanses the temple. But this section of scripture is indeed a cohesive, connected, and purposeful record that shows us much about Jesus and the kind of king he is. And it's to that end we're going to dive in. So Mark begins, as they drew near to Jerusalem, they approached the towns of Bethany and Bethpage. I did have a map, but I forgot to put it up for you. They'd been traveling south from Galilee, heading down towards Jerusalem. There'd been a bit of a detour through Samaria. They'd crossed a couple of rivers, and he'd ended up, um, and Bethany is kind of first, and then Bethpage, they're just like little outlying villages that are set up high on about the side of the Mount of Olives with a, an overlooking view of Jerusalem. So here they are riding into town, and they arrive at the town of Bethany. And Jesus pulled over into um, maybe a stop, revive, survive for a coffee. And as you do on a road trip, a wee, uh, maybe. And just as he was swilling the last of his latte and he's telling the disciples, uh, saddle up, we ride at dawn, we're heading on in. He pulls two of them aside and he says, hey guys, up ahead there's a village and there's going to be a, a donkey there. And when you find this donkey... Um, I want you guys to kind of steal it, borrow it, just take it. If anyone says anything to you and questions what you're doing, um, just tell them that I need it and we'll drop it back later with a full tank of fuel. I mean, what would you have been thinking if you were the disciples? You know, Jesus is giving you these instructions which are actually quite detailed. And on your walk to that village, you're like, man, what if... What if this just doesn't work out? I mean, maybe they're thinking, Jesus, are you serious? Like, can't we do it maybe the more conventional way? You know, surely there's like a renter donkey here in Bethany that we can get one and we can just drop it off on the return trip and she'll be apples. Can't, we're pretty close, Jesus. You know, surely we can just keep walking. We can leg it there, no problems. You know, on paper, this request of Jesus was outrageous. It was left of center. It was unconventional. And for the disciples, the outcome of this request was entirely uncertain for them. They had no idea whether the donkey would be there. They had no idea whether it would be tied up or locked up. They didn't know whose donkey it was. They didn't even know whose house it was. 
They didn't know if the people would say no, go and get another donkey. There was so much uncertainty, but yet they still went. There was hardly grounds for a resounding yes to Jesus' request. But sure enough, though, they went. And lo and behold, they found the colt tied at the door outside the street. So they did as Jesus requested, and they untied it. And just as Jesus had anticipated, somebody did ask, what are you doing taking our colt? And so they followed the instructions that Jesus had given them. They said, well, Jesus needs it. We'll drop it back a little bit later on. And whoever's donkey it was, let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus. What I want to draw our attention to here is that Everything happened in this encounter just as Jesus said it would. Everything. All of it. Down to every last detail. And perhaps this shouldn't surprise us, knowing what we know about Jesus and what he has shown himself capable of so far. But I tell you now, if we were the disciples and we were sent in such a manner, and we were returning with that donkey in tow, our minds would be blown. We would have a sense of sheer bewilderment at actually what Jesus said would happen actually happened. And here they are, and they are on the road back, and they've borrowed the donkey, and everything that Jesus said would happen happened. And as I think about this, I find it deeply reassuring for people just like you and I, who are doing our best to follow Jesus. Because when it seems like what he is asking us to do in any given moment is a little bit left of center, what he's asking us to do might be a little bit unconventional, it might be a little bit scary, it might be a little bit, um, we don't know how this is going to go, we don't know what the outcome of this is going to be. We can take heart that the Lord is faithful to his word. That things will go the way the Lord says they will go. Such was Joshua's testimony where he declared, not one of all of the Lord's good promises to Israel failed. Everyone was fulfilled. A truth echoed by God to Ezekiel when God said to him, none of my words will be delayed any longer. Whatever I say will be fulfilled. And this was the experience of these two disciples in the donkey getting escapade. What Jesus said was fulfilled. And when the word of God, friends, tells us that we are called, that we are chosen, that we are loved with an unconditional love, when the word tells us that the spirit breathes life into us through God's word, that he will strengthen us, that he promises that he will give us rest, that he will set us free from sin, that he will answer our prayers, that he will be with us wherever we go, that he will make firm our steps. You can bet your bottom dollar on it that it will happen. When God says it, it will go his way. And that is what we must place our faith in, that God is faithful to his word. Not our word. God's not faithful to our word. He's faithful to his word. And when we look at every promise in the record of Scripture, 
We can look at this moment with the donkey and just see exactly how it went. As Jesus said it would, we can take heart that every promise in the canon of Scripture is for us. David in Psalm 33 verse 4 reminds us, For the word of the Lord is right and true. He is faithful in all he does. And this is, that's something special for us. Just, it might not look how we think it might look, but we must stand on the truth that God is faithful to his word. Now with Operation Donkey Borrow uh, raging success, Mark continues to tell us that they, uh, which I'm assuming the disciples, they took off their cloaks, their outer garments, and they, they lay it, them on top of the donkey. And then Jesus saddled up on the donkey and he began to trot into Jerusalem. And as he meandered his way down from Bethany and through Bethpage and down the decline, winding road down into Jerusalem, other people began laying their cloaks on the ground as well, out in front of them. And some went and got palm leaves that they'd cut down from the field and and they lay them out down on the road in front of him. And from among the swelling crowd arose a burgeoning chorus of praise. Hosanna, they cried out, which means, Lord, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. You know, this moment of worship was a booming echo of Israel's yearning in Psalm 118. Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I mean, to say that this was a climactic moment would be an absolute understatement. I mean, this was the rolling out of the red carpet for the king. This was the whole town gathering recognizing who he had said he was, recognizing the way that he was coming in that moment. And they've joined the dots and they've gone, Jesus is who he has said he is and they lifted a chorus of praise. You know, I can imagine that the curiosity of the crowds was palpable. Was this truly the Messiah? Would have been some people. Could this actually be the promised one of God? the one that would actually set us free, the one who would bring us justice, the one who would release us from oppression, the one who would overthrow the enemy and bring peace. I mean, is this actually him? Because it kind of doesn't look like it in some senses. But to double down on the last point, that God is always faithful to his word, check out Zechariah's prophecy from hundreds of years earlier. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. You know, it wasn't just the donkey retrieval that shows that God is faithful to his word. The very act of Jesus riding this donkey into town is again evidence that God is faithful to his word. I mean, this scene is confounding. I mean, surely this is not how a triumphant king makes his entrance with the red carpet rolled out. 
And the nation of Israel was expecting a political or a nationalist leader, perhaps a, a social reformer that would come, you know, with some kind of violent streak, as perhaps some people still believe Jesus might do today. I mean, no doubt there was a particular vision of what the coming Messiah would look like for his people. Some perhaps had in their mind a William Wallace kind of riding in on his stallion with his locks and kilt flowing in the breeze behind him. Some might have had a a vision of um, Russell Crowe in Gladiator as the one who would be the one to come and set them free. Maybe others had a bit of a Hemsworth Thor thing going on where they just they thought this guy would come in strength and in might and he'd be ripped and chiseled much like myself and he'd be on a big horse or come in chariots or he'd you know there would be a, a huge amount of hullabaloo around this situation but once again Jesus is tipping all proper convention on its head And he flipped the script, which was a hallmark of Jesus' ministry. Flipping the script. People expected him to be one way, and he repeatedly turned up in another. And this moment was no exception. And Mark, linking up with Zechariah, reveals the promised king. Here he was in plain sight, no longer just the self-proclaimed Messiah who was claiming to be the Son of God. But the streets now are washed in the proclamation that Jesus, the unlikely king, the carpenter from Galilee, the unassuming Nazarene, is the king. And he is here. Not on a war horse, not with an army, not with a rifle, with a bayonet, not with his torch, nor with his pitchfork. No, he comes. Not at a gallop or canter, but slowly. And lowly, the triumphant, victorious, freedom-winning, evil-defeating, enemy-conquering king entering Jerusalem, humbly, lowly, sitting on the back of all things, a baby donkey. Mark, along with the other gospel writers, make clear the point that Jesus is a king-like no other. He is victorious, though not prideful. He is strong, though not arrogant. He is powerful, though not pompous. He is righteous, though not condescending. He is triumphant, though not lofty. He is king of all, yet the personification of humility. Isn't he just beautiful? What a picture we have of King Jesus turning everything on its head, all expectation, and comes lowly, humbly. Surely there is no other king more worthy than Jesus for our hearts to bow and our knees to bend before. Now I'm going to jump a little bit ahead here and come back and make a couple of observations. So doing like a a jump to the end and then going to Come back to it. Is that all right? Good. Very good. I'm glad. So obliging. Um, So Jesus being a tad tired uh, with the disciples, um, and they needed to drop the donkey back, uh, they left the center of town 
uh, and went back up to Bethany, most likely um, to stay with Mary and Martha and Lazarus, um, because he was some of their best friends. And as we know, Lazarus was really grateful for Jesus for getting him back out of the tomb. Um, He was dead, Jesus goes, brings him back to life, Um, best mates forever, obviously. So they've probably gone back to Bethany to stay at their place. And then Mark tells us in verse 15 that the, the next day, so they went back to Bethany, slept the night, the next day. They came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and things got pretty real. Jesus, in a state that we otherwise rarely see him in, began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written that my house shall be called a house of prayer for all of the nations. But you have made it a den of robbers. I mean, Jesus, he is enraged. He is indignant. Something has cut him deeply. Something has cut him so deeply to the core of his his most deeply held values. I mean, why else would somebody have responded with such passionate disdain? This affected Jesus no end. You know, he, he, he comes in and he's got the table and the, and the money changers are, are, are there and he's, God, hey, what are you guys doing? He gets the, the chairs and starts tipping them upside down. Walks, sorry if I scared you. Uh, it's all. But this is no passive, quiet, sanitized, domesticated, unassuming... You know, he's driving them out. Get out of here. Tipping over seats. And he just says to everyone, everyone, tools down. I don't want you to carry anything through this temple. Put it all down. Empty-handed, walk, get out, go, empty-handed. Leave empty-handed, come back, come back empty-handed. Carrying nothing. Through the temple. At the top of the lungs, he's quoting Isaiah 56. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness. For soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. And he goes on in Isaiah 56. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Who? The foreigners. The foreigners who will join themselves to the Lord and to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and be his servants. These I will bring to my holy mountain and make it joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts 
declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. Jesus is also referencing Old Testament prophecy in Jeremiah 7, where God is speaking through Jeremiah to the nation of Israel about how they had corrupted the Lord's temple, saying, For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one uh, one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner or the pilgrim or the foreigner or the one who is coming to find the place where the Lord resides, if you do not oppress the fatherless or the widow or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Has this house, which has been called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? See, Jesus was in Jerusalem for Passover, where people had come from everywhere, all over, north, south, east, west, descending upon Jerusalem to celebrate the freedom that Yahweh had won for them in releasing them from slavery in Egypt. And everyone who came to the temple for Passover came to offer a sacrifice. And of course, most foreigners couldn't bring one from afar because it was either too cumbersome to do so or they couldn't use foreign currency. And so they had to exchange their money and buy an animal for sacrifice. And this isn't just 20 or 30 people, we're talking tens of thousands of people. The commotion and the noise would have been overwhelming. And this was all taking place in the outer court, the the court of the Gentiles. And I didn't get to getting you a map of the Uh, the temple up on here, but the big, expansive, open, first place you get to in the temple. This is where this was all taking place. And this court of the Gentiles is a symbol for the freedom and access for all people of all nations to be welcomed into the presence of God. Instead... They were met not only with the loud sounds of animals and of trading and of the marketplace, but the locals were taking their opportunity to price gouge, hike the prices for the sacrificial animals at the expense of the outsider and the foreigner to the point where they could not afford to take part in the worship that they had travelled so far to be able to give to the Lord. And what broke Jesus' heart to the point that such strong and sweeping action was how the religious leaders on their watch and under their leadership created and allowed a system of profiteering, of power and injustice that kept the foreigner, the outsider, out. This was the indictment that we read of God on the nation of Israel in Isaiah 56 and Jeremiah 7. That they had excluded the foreigner. That they had left out the outsider. That they had disallowed people like eunuchs. They had forgotten the widow and the orphan. 
And here God's judgment through Christ can be seen again. The time Jesus, this time Jesus is exacting his justice upon those who were keeping people, the outsider and the foreigner, from being able to worship God. Peter says in his beautiful gospel message to the Gentiles in Acts 10, how true it is that God does not show favoritism or partiality, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. The message that all are welcome is at the very core of the gospel, is at the very core of Jesus' deeply held values. And here in the temple, he found a place that was meant to facilitate people's worship, facilitating a vision that actually allowed no such thing. He found the exact opposite of what his heart for the temple was. That the outsider could become an insider. But the way they had set things up, the way that they had structured things, perhaps out of their own fear, who knows? But they had excluded the outsider from being able to be in the presence of God. And Jesus was upset, to say the least. This is my house, he declared. Jesus assumed his rightful place to rearrange his home how he meant it to be. You know, when we invite Jesus into our lives, when we as a church surrender and orient our way of worship and being together to him, he assumes his place in our lives to rearrange the furniture to align things in our hearts to how they are meant to be. And sometimes that feels like he's tipping over tables in our lives. Sometimes it feels like the comfy chair we were sitting on. He says, mate, off you get. And he gets that chair and he takes it out to the council clean-up pile and says, no, not anymore. Whether it's our money whether it's how we spend our time, whether it's our views on political or social or cultural things, he comes and shows us where those things fit in our lives according to his plan. Jesus will assume the right in your life and in his church to take authority over the things that are not aligned to him and his kingdom. And sometimes that is a confronting work But friends, may we hold the picture of how Jesus entered Jerusalem as the the blueprint for how Jesus enters our lives. His wrath has been moved on, had it been dealt with at the cross. And Jesus, he enters our lives lowly and humbly. I can't help but think of the picture of the disciples right at the moment where one of them was about to betray them and Jesus, he takes off his robe and he grabs a towel and he gets down on the, on the ground and he, and he gets a tub, tub of water and he starts to wash their feet. This is how Jesus rearranges our hearts. He humbles himself in our lives to rearrange our hearts that they would align to his kingdom. 
You know, the temple was the place that the outsiders were meant to become insiders, but the insiders used their religion for their own personal security and comfort at the expense of welcoming the outsider. And I wonder in what ways, and perhaps we all maybe do, I'm not sure about you, I can only speak for myself, but how I use religiosity or how I use my fears to create a sense of personal security and safety or comfort at the expense of welcoming the foreigner. The people who aren't like me. The people I don't understand. The people I don't get. Our vision ought to be that of God's heart in Isaiah 56, that this is a home where the outsider can join their life to the Lord, to minister to Him and to love Him and be His servants, that they and us with them would be filled with joy in His presence. And there's a couple of observations that I want to make to close here. and This is where we just kind of rewind a little bit. Jesus saw all of this activity that caused him to be so indignant the day before. Mark tells us that after Jesus had dismounted from the donkey and after the dust had settled from all the rigmarole that went with this big moment of praise, Jesus maybe went for a meander, a wander around Jerusalem, and he actually ended up in the temple. And it's probably safe to assume, maybe it's not, and I could be wrong and forgive me if I am, But it's probably safe to assume that that afternoon, Jesus walked into the temple and he saw all of this. And no doubt in that moment, that afternoon, it just started building up in him. You know, this sense of indignation and anger and raw, just wanted to do it right there and right then. But there's something deeply profound about Jesus here. We see that here is a man who was not driven or reactive to his emotions or the immediacy of the situation before him. Instead, we see Jesus exercising patient restraint that enabled him to respond according to the Father's purpose. Jesus had the capacity to walk away. I mean, I find that just so empowering Because so often I might sense injustice in our world or see it in the playground for the kids. However that transpires and I can feel it rise up in me and the very first thing I want to do when there's the bully is go and knock him in the teeth. Sorry, that's the unredeemed side of Dave. But Jesus shows us another way than being reactive to our immediate emotion. And he gives us permission and the tools. And by the power of his Holy Spirit, he enables and empowers us to respond, not from emotion, but from a deep sense of purpose in alignment with what God is doing. And it shows us the theme again that Mark has been hammering home, that Jesus has an incredible capacity to remain calm in a storm. We saw it in the boat. We saw it when he was confronted with the demoniac. We see it in this moment now. There is a rage going on around Jesus. 
There is praise, high praise. So too, there is also plotting. Those who wanted to kill him were right there. And in the throes of both praise and plotting, Jesus chose God's presence. When we're going through turbulent times as a culture, when we can feel threatened as a church, whether it feels like we're in a season of praise or of being plotted against, we can get carried away in our desire for control over situations or threatened by certain things. But Jesus shows us how to stay grounded in God's plans and not be distracted or dismayed by the plans of the enemy. And in walking away that afternoon, Jesus shows us that an emotional reaction to injustice does not achieve what a patient and prayerful response in God's presence can. I think what helped Jesus walk away that afternoon and park his response until the the next day is he was anchored in the bigger story than what he saw in the moment. Sure, yes, it mattered to him deeply. But it's not so much as to compromise his commitment to prayer and the bigger thing that God was doing in this moment. So in the face of injustice and when we feel deep indignation, we can take heart that Jesus invites us to his way. Not to react to our emotions, but to respond in patience, in prayer, with a kingdom perspective that looks to the beauty and fulfillment of what King Jesus is doing in the world. And I'm going to skip the cursing of the fig tree because we're running out of time. To say that, though, Mark, he splits it. He he shows they go to the fig tree and there's no fruit on it and he curses the tree and says, never bear fruit again. Then he goes and and clears the the temple. And then it's not until afterwards that he gives the teaching on why the fig tree had withered. And Tim Keller says this, that the tree was a perfect metaphor for those claiming to be God's people but who do not bear fruit. I love that he says this. This is a profound action with a simple message. Jesus was using the tree as the way uh, to show, the highlight the, the result of a life that does not bear kingdom fruit. It was not personal outrage but prophetic action that Jesus took with the fig tree. Go and sit with that during the week. And I want to close with this. In verse 16, in Jesus not allowing anyone to carry anything through the temple. You know, I think there is something so powerful in Jesus' instruction that every person in the temple courts would lay everything down and not carry a thing. And I think coming empty-handed into the presence of God is exactly how God wants us to be. Because nothing says... I'm surrendered quite like having empty hands. I bring nothing. I come, empty, I come empty-handed to you, Lord. I think all too often we can come to the Lord or come to a place of worship and we can come to church or come to the Word of God. We can even come to each other in community and we can have so much in our hands. I know that I can come, and perhaps you can too, to any or all of those places, and I can hold tightly onto my fears. I can hold tightly onto my insecurities. I can hold tightly onto the offenses that maybe I carry in my heart. I can grip onto my comfort, 
my sense of personal security. I can, I can grip onto my preferences of how I like things done or what songs I like heard in church or how good the coffee is. And we, like those in the temple that day, can perhaps find ourselves missing out on the beauty of Jesus and his kingdom and his call for us to welcome the outsider because we're holding white knuckles onto things that God has never asked us to hold. And so as we come to the communion table this morning, I wonder what the Lord is asking you to put down. What is it that you are holding in the presence of God that maybe, just maybe, is one hindering you coming into the presence of the Father and feeling free with Him? Maybe what is it, and this is a confronting thought for me, and what is it that I am holding on to? What attitudes, what beliefs, what approaches, what ways in me, Lord, are there that are perhaps stopping outsiders, people who aren't like me, coming into the presence of God to love Him, to minister to Him? Lord, what am I holding on to? I don't want to give Jesus any reason to walk into my life and have to flip the tables because I haven't let people in. And the truth in all of this, the upside down, back to front, topsy-turvy and ironic truth is that Jesus, he became the outsider so that the outsiders could become insiders. And now, that language can be really unhelpful, outsiders and insiders, the delineation, but just have some grace for me. Jesus... 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake God made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He was cast out of the city to die on a cross so that we could be brought home. He was handed over to death so we could find life. He was cast from the presence of God to win for us the eternal gift of God's presence with the Father. And Paul reminds us in Ephesians 2, and uh, we're not going to get the band up. I was about to say band, come up. Um, In a sec, Greg, could you just line up some worship we can play? Because I want us to take communion as a community, and I don't want our worship guys to feel like they miss out on that moment with all of us um, together. But let's stand. I'm going to read Ephesians 2 to a few verses for us and be reminded of what Christ has done for us. He has become an outsider so we could be welcomed in and that extends not just to us but to all people of all nations, of all tribes, of all the world. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision is made by flesh in the hands. Remember that you were at that time, you and I, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, us, foreigners, outsiders, not welcome in God's presence, that was us. But now in Christ Jesus, who you once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, 
who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together in a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And what a beautiful work of Christ. That he would go to such lengths to welcome you and I in. And friends, it is our turn to redeem the tables. The tables that have kept people out. The tables, the things in our lives that we have held on to too tightly. The things we have carried that have kept people experiencing the goodness and grace and love of Jesus. And I haven't got any solutions to what that looks like right here in this moment. But that is for us to wrestle out with the Lord. But what I know we can do is that we can be a community that welcomes each other with generosity, that welcomes our world with generosity, that has no, as Nat said the other day, no velvet rope that says, you in, but not you. May we be a church that represents the heart of God for all of the nations, in Jesus' name. And so I want us this morning, just to finish up, taking communion together in a in a noisy, raucous, conversational way. Come and break some bread, pour some juice, have a conversation with um, somebody, pray for, for one another. If you uh, would like to receive prayer, just reach out to a friend and say, can you pray for me? Um, however that looks for you in this moment. But I want us to converse on the goodness of God, that he would love us to such a degree and that he would call us to the same. And so come on down, tear some bread, make some juice and If this takes us 10 minutes just to chat and linger, don't feel like you need to rush off. Um, We can just commune with one another and with the Father around the table and be generous and hospitable and welcoming to each other. Amen. Enjoy. And...